Hi, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of September 18th, 2023. On this week's show, The Wall Street Journal's Jason Gay will join us to talk about Aaron Rodgers' Achilles tear and when the quarterback's own research suggests he might be back. Jason will also chat with us about American cyclist Sepp Kuss's historic Grand Tour win at the Vuelta a España. And finally, the athletic Sabrina Merchant will be here to chat about the super teams dominating the WNBA and who might have a chance to take down the New York Liberty and the Las Vegas Aces in this year's playoffs. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Our new season, One Year 1955, is out now with new episodes every Thursday. Listen, subscribe, rate, review. We appreciate it. Joel Anderson is off this week, recovering emotionally from the turmoil caused by watching his TCU Horned Frogs pummel his Houston Cougars, 36-13. But with me in D.C. is Stefan Fatsis. He is the author of the book's Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. How is your Horned Frog treating your Cougar this week, Stefan? It was kind of a win-win-lose-lose situation for Joel, wasn't it? TCU against Houston. It was. How is your cougar treating your horned frog, should I say? I don't know which uh, which belongs first. Do you put the larger the larger animal first? Is well, that the larger animal is going to the cougar is going to eat the horned frog. So probably not a good weekend for the horned frog ever when it faces a cougar. Except when Dana Holgerson is involved. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, Jason Gay will stick around to talk about America's bucket list sports experiences. What are yours? What are mine? We'll talk about that and some random other stuff in the bonus segment, and you need to be a Slate Plus member to get that. You get bonus segments on this and other shows, including Slow Burn and One Year. You get ad-free shows, and you get to support us. Slate.com slash Hangup Plus. That's Slate.com slash Hangup Plus. Last Monday night in front of a national television audience, after all the hype and the hard knocks and running onto the field at MedLife Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey, waving an American flag, Aaron Rodgers took his fourth ever snap from center as a New York Jet, and a few seconds later, he felt a different kind of snap, a complete tear of his left Achilles tendon. The 39-year-old Rodgers, already the oldest player in the NFL post Tom Brady version, will now face a long and difficult rehab to get back on the field. Although, in an appearance with his pal Pat McAfee, the quarterback-slash-independent vaccine researcher said he might not be gone for as long as the haters think. I think what I'd like to say is, uh, give me the doubts. Yes. Give me the doubts. Give me the, uh, the timetables. Give me all the things that you think can, should, or will happen. Because all I need is that one little extra percent of inspiration. I think what we should experiment with on the show, Stefan, is just having someone say yes after any every sentence that we say, just to kind of back us up. Um, maybe the man to do that is Jason Gay. He is a columnist for The Wall Street Journal, and he's with us for two segments this week. Jason, welcome. Yes. <laughs> you're uh, you're signed up. Uh, we have now had a week to digest this, Jason. And given that you are, I am told, a professional sports and humor columnist, mm. I think you're in a decent position to answer what I think is the crucial question about this whole scenario, 
are we allowed as a society to think that any part of this is just a little bit funny? Yeah, it's a hard one, right? Because on one hand, you don't want to see somebody suffer an injury. You certainly don't want to see them suffer a career altering, perhaps a career ending injury. But your mind just crosses over into this just maudlin but comical world of Jets misery immediately. And if there was a franchise that would endure this kind of situation, it's hard to pick one that's more on brand than the Jets. Uh, it is just just very much in sync with what the last 50 or so post-Namath years have been for this misbegotten franchise. And so, yeah, I mean, it's... Definitely on the threshold of too soon, but Which I think is funny because it. when Josh asked you if you thought that any part of this was funny, I immediately thought any part of Aaron Rodgers getting injured is funny. I mean, I grew up a Giants fan. I love mocking the Jets. It's a fun thing when I was a kid and continues to be a fun thing many years later. But really, isn't the well, the 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 entertainment value, the Schadenfreude value? In Rogers getting hurt, Mr. Ayahuasca, take care of my body, find a higher meaning. Um, and of all things, Jason, he tore his Achilles tendon. I thought he was invulnerable. He had found the secrets to life. I, I don't know if you've looked at any of the longitudinal studies of <laughs> ayahuasca on Achilles tendons, but uh, <laughs> they are inconclusive, Stefan. So I'm not ready to to laugh it up with you. Uh, you know, there 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 might actually be uh, the need for an actual medical intervention here. I mean, the second that it happened, your mind just wanders to. I bet he's in the locker room, like looking up on YouTube, like Achilles tendon. Is it? Does it? Is it real? Is it really torn? You know, can they actually tear? But. I feel like everybody has made those jokes in the last week that we've moved on and need to get some fresh material. But um, I think the the way that this conversation has sort of tilted in the last few days and since he went on Pat McAfee is that where kind of Rogers's alternative health, don't believe the doctors sort of through line has gone is, I am going to have the fastest Achilles... Mm -hmm tendon mm. repair and healing process that any human has ever had. And there is some kind of empirical basis that we can eventually weigh that against, right? Jason, we can like look at the at the timetable and see what happens to see if he can actually defy medical convention in this sense. But but also the isn't the most um hopeful rendering of this recovery that he returns in time for the playoffs. To watch other teams playing, I mean, like that part of it kind of cracked me up. That like, oh, Rogers might be available for the late season, you know, clinch games. I was like, mm, we're looking at a team that might have removed itself from contention already. Back to your locker room scenario, Josh. I mean, yeah, the jokes have all been made, but Aaron Rodgers is also helping us make the jokes. Um, he said to his buddy Pat McAfee. My entire focus and dedication is about acquiring the most information and adding to what I've already put together as a pretty damn good rehab plan that's going to, I think, shock some people. He writes his own material. It's true. And, you know, the 
surgery that he got. Hold on, let me make sure that I get this exactly right. Speed bridge surgery mm. performed by renowned orthopedic surgeon Dr. Neil Alatrash. It seems like the name of something that just got invented five days ago. Um, but I don't know, man. This is uh, you. You feel bad, like Drew McGarry did a a column where he said. You know, I root against Rodgers. I want him to eat shit, but I would rather him lose on the field. It's unseemly to wish that a guy gets hurt. Um, but then you're like, this is a guy who two weeks ago was like putting on Instagram Novax Djokovic and is like fighting with Keith Olbermann on Twitter. Or Keith Olbermann is tweeting about, uh, you know, how you can get sudden list frank due to failure to vaccinate and rogers is firing back get your fifth booster keith i mean it's sort of Ouch. like oh that really hurt it's like uh stefan is saying here the guy is uh providing us a lot of material to work with here i mean is there some sort of backstage scenario that after he goes down and is carted off that they bring him into the x-ray and he's like whoa 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 what are we doing here x-ray and I'm not sure I agree with Drew. You know, Aaron Rodgers is like 40, pushing 40. He was a serviceable quarterback last year. He was not great. Um, he is certainly not getting better, no matter what ayahuasca might be telling him. Um, is the NFL that much worse off without Aaron Rodgers as a quarterback? Yes, it's worse worse off without Aaron Rodgers as a star and a talker and a, and a provider of news material. Um, but in terms of his ability, yeah, he's probably better than Zach Wilson. Sure. But it's not like we're, we're talking about 30 year old Aaron Rodgers. Stefan, was there anything you saw in the minute 15 seconds of his career on the jets that made you think that this was going to all turn around? Oh, they're going to, they're going to retire his number right after the season. If he can't come back. I mean, did anyone catch the uh, the Cowboy Jet game yesterday? I mean, I didn't realize it was the four o'clock game. It came on after the Ravens game I was watching, and I thought, "Oh wow, this would have been a game I would have been very, very excited to watch before this injury." And now the whole vibe around this team kind of feels like a long vacation that was planned by a person who's no longer on the vacation, right? It's just sort of like, oh, the whole reason we were doing this thing was because, you know, someone organized it all and that person's gone. I mean, they're not just gone. They're out of the picture entirely. And it just has created, you know, it is the same old Jets energy instantly. In defense of, of Drew's position that there is something enjoyable even if you don't root for him and having Rodgers on the field. Um, he's had a bunch of just absolutely mm -hmm. incredible moments as an NFL player. There was a moment, and I think you could probably still mount an argument, that in terms of career value and even like peak greatness, he's maybe the best quarterback ever. And um, he's also the last well, he was the last man standing until he sat on the turf of this generation of quarterbacks, Brady, Manning, um, et cetera, that changed the sport forever. And so Flacco, um, <laughs> Flacco, <laughs> Dilfer, um, there is 
this um still i i think he is still kind of appointment viewing he is um somebody who um i th- i think a lot of us have gotten a lot of joy even neutral fans out of watching over the years and the issue with him um has only been when he's not been playing every time he opens his mouth um especially in recent years um at least i you know become less and less interested um in hearing him talk and in wanting to uh get to know anything more about the guy and now for the next six Mm. months a year it's going to be all talk from him from people around him about how great he is about how he's killing it in rehab about whatever um, and his value to humanity, I think, diminishes week by week as we kind of the the distance from his greatness on the field gets like increasingly uh, attenuated. Which is interesting, Jason, because usually with athletes of this caliber, their platform is playing. And Rogers has managed to transition to a point in his life where his platform when he's not playing is louder and bigger. Yeah, and I would say that, you know, speak for yourself that you're not interested in Aaron Rodgers' off-field admonitions. I mean, I think that he is somebody who does have an audience, and I think much in the same way, you know, Joe Rogan is the ex-comedian turned, you know, voice of uh, whatever he's the voice of. Aaron Rodgers is that for a certain sector of sports fans, and now he has a lot of spare time. I mean, there's only so much rehab you can do. This is a guy who's already shown a great deal of interest in alternative media. And then, you know, other stuff like <laughs> hosting Jeopardy and beyond. I mean, he is not somebody who I think is going to just, you know, slide off into physical therapy and we're not going to hear from him again. I think this actually could be the the bridge the bridge surgery to whatever is next in Aaron Rodgers' career. I mean, the other part of this that I think comical is that this team was built around his needs and his personal wants um there are coaches there are players there are you know questionable hires that the jets have brought on uh specifically to placate aaron Rodgers. now they have are you saying that randall cobb is going to find that the the uh, combination to the building entrance is going to be changed. <laughs> I mean, anything is possible, but the Meadowlands Packers uh, energy is definitely weird now. It is definitely weird. I agree. I don't know if either of you guys have made enough mistakes in your life that the YouTube algorithm has fed you the video where former Packers backup quarterback Deshaun Kaiser talks about how the first time you met Aaron Rodgers, the first thing Rodgers asked him was, what do you think of 9-11? Um, and then the conversation goes on to uh, lizard people and the hosts are laughing and Deshaun Kaiser's like, it's not funny. Like, you guys really need to, like, that's the kind of influence, that's I think what Zach Wilson is in for this year. Like, Aaron Rodgers is going to be, have time to gather so much uh, more new material. Like, that's the kind of locker room presence that I think you know, the Jets are going to get from a, a mentoring perspective. Um, but Stefan, maybe in our remaining 90 seconds, we can pivot to uh, whether uh, the NFL is going to ban turf now. <laughs> hard, tra- hard transition. But there is some dispute about whether turf was actually involved in this injury uh, 
at all. Like, I, I don't know if it's even possible to tell. There have been studies. The NFLPA is using this as a moment to make the argument that it often makes that um, all fields should be grass. The NFL is countering with its usual doing its own research, saying, oh, actually, you know, the fields that we have are totally safe. Uh, I don't know if, if you think that there will the, the storyline will be the same or if there will be momentum now because of Rodgers's staritude. Like, it's obviously, for whatever we think, it's not great for the NFL that this guy is, is hurt and out for the year. No. Um, Allegedly. No. Um, this feels like one of those those issues that is so easy to resolve. Players don't like turf. They like grass more. Let's put in grass. But the economics of grass for a league in which grass gets chewed up mercilessly through these games every week, um, owners will fight back against that as they have. Finally, somebody speaking long up for time. the grass. Somebody speaking up for the, you know, I am, yeah, for well, grass. The NFL owners are pro-grass and not just because, right, it's cheaper because they, they care about the grass. But it is star- It is pretty startling when you turn on the Premier League every week and you see these absolutely glorious manicured grass fields and you wonder how the hell can't we put down a decent grass surface in American professional sports. It's kind of crazy. But Stefan, you're sort of uniquely positioned to answer this. I always thought that it's not a financial thing because think about it. You know, turf is a reasonably new invention. It's not, you know, we had decades and decades of professional football played at a much smaller budget with grass fields. Isn't there also a performance aspect of it that teams like turf in terms of just the reliability of it with which to create offense and with which to be able to do routes and scheming and things like that. No, there's no, no, reason. no. players, players really do universally hate turf. Um, okay. They much prefer running on grass and throwing on grass and kicking on grass. Um, it, that is, that, that's a consistent. Um, and I really do think it's really uh, stadium ownership and replacement and maintenance of grass fields. Look, you got a turf field, you can do whatever events you want on the other 350 days that you're not playing football in these stadiums. Um, with turf, you know, with, with actual grass, you can't. But when the World Cup rolls around in 2026, all of the games are going to be played in NFL stadiums, there will be grass fields uh, because yes. FIFA says you have to have grass fields. The NFL says you don't have to have grass fields because the owners don't want to have them. Well, you saw who was in Jerry Jones's skybox over the weekend watching the Cowboys Jets game. Yeah, FIFA Yanni was there Yanni, watching. Yanni Infantino, yes, yeah, with the he's doing his idea. Own research. Yeah, he's doing his Jerry, own research for the World Jerry, Cup. Jerry, Jerry yeah. wants the World Cup final in 2026. Up next, American Sepkus wins a big cycling race. America rejoices. Well, at least some of America. An American biked triumphantly and no-handed, which is always fun, across the finish line in Madrid on Sunday to win one of cycling's majors, the Vuelta a España. He is 29-year-old Seth Kuss from Durango, Colorado, and he became the first American in a decade and just the fourth overall to win a grand tour as the big three mountain races in Europe are known. None of those four are named Lance Armstrong or Floyd Landis, whose victories were stripped because they took a lot of drugs. 
Jason, you and your colleague Joshua Robinson have provided full team coverage of the Spanish bike ride. And with reason, the race was filled with the old human drama of athletic competition. Let's set the table by saying that Kuss rides for the Jumbo Visma team. Jumbo is a Dutch-Belgian supermarket chain and Visma is a Norwegian software company. But he's not one of the two main dudes on that team. They would be Jonas Vingago and Primoz Roglic who have won six grand tours between them. Yes, I listened to some Danes and Slovenians pronounce their names. Jason, usually the main dudes win these races because people like Kuss are employed to help them do that. So what happened in Spain? Well, what happened was uh, Seb Kuss, I mean, most cyclists begin with aspirations of winning races, but over time and competition, they start to realize that they might not be the most talented person in the field. And so they slide into roles where they are support riders. And Koos is an incredibly talented mountain climber. He is somebody who proved himself repeatedly to be a tremendous support rider for champions, as you beautifully pronounce, Vingegaard, Roglic, as Yumbo went on to win a whole bunch of grand tours. This is a guy who was given an opportunity early on in this race to go off and win a stage for himself. Oftentimes, early in races, especially, teams will say, "Okay, we'll throw a you know throw a bone Sep's way, let him get a stage, and set himself you know build his confidence for the late stages of the race where he's got to help other people." Instead, what happened was Kuz gained so much time that he was actually in the leader's jersey with the the lowest uh, aggregate time. That put him in a position to wear the leader's jersey. He performed very well in a late, what they call individual time trial, which is a race against the clock. He did a lot better than anyone thought he would do. So lo and behold, with about a week and a half to go, he was in the driver's seat. And it put uh, the team in this very unusual circumstance of having two leaders, Vingegaard and Roglic, who were there to win, clearly. But the guy who was supposed to be helping them was all of a sudden in front. So then the predicament became, who do you pick? You know, because effectively this team is so good that they were just kind of rearranging the jerseys here. They had pretty much one, two, and three locked in. So it became a debate and then a pretty interesting on-the-course intrigue as to who was going to win. I mean, in a lot of these races, it varies from year to year and tour to tour. You often end up in the final week with, you know, a decisive lead for somebody three minutes, five minutes, seven minutes. And in this race, um, this was not just a kind of academic question of, you know, who should we support? You know, who's the leader? This was down to seconds um, in a lead. And so the team, uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, Jason, but they could basically choose who they wanted to win the race. And so there was a question about, unwritten rules, a question about who deserves it, a question about, um, you know, team chemistry, like all of these things that kind of translate across different sports. We got to see how they played out in cycling. Absolutely. And you got to see it play out in real time because what ended up happening and one of the reasons why the lead started to whittle down was that Kuz's teammates started to gain time on him. So effectively, his big threat in the course of this race, especially in the final week, were Roglic and Vingegaard. Um, it created this sort of, as you said, sort of all this kinds of intrigue. The team did have to make a decision because, you know, you do employ a strategy here. You do, do direct your riders. I mean, it's not to say that riders don't disobey their team orders every once in a while. That's happened. But they do start the day saying, this is what we would like to have happen. 
Um, and uh, yeah, the debate really became a question of, you know, here's Kuss, and Kuss winning the Vuelta would be an enormously popular story, an underappreciated, lesser-known rider having, you know, the moment of a lifetime, a career-defining victory in a Grand Tour, uh, versus was he maybe not the strongest rider in the race? Were maybe his teammates better equipped to have the best time overall over the course of three weeks? You know, it was a, a little bit of a sentimental choice versus the ruthless choice. But cycling is full of that kind of thing. I mean, you guys have covered this sport here and there, and it's full of the kind of like unwritten rules and pageantry and romance, you know, issues that make this kind of to topic very fertile, but also not uncommon for cycling. I mean, you don't want to say rigged, but it's managed, right? And that's what makes the sport so weird, I think, to outsiders who are not super familiar with it. Um, you know, Kuss happened to get a lead earlier in the race. And then on his birthday, the other two dudes said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We're going to chase your ass down and make this an actual competition. And then the next day, the leaders of the team, the suits, said, no, you're not. Back off, dudes. We want to let Kuss win. I mean, does that make cycling fans are cycling fans okay with that because that's the way it's always been or is there genuinely something screwed up about that approach to these competitions no i think that there isn't i mean contextually i don't think it's screwed up because in cycling you see um and i would i, I would hesitate to use the word rigged i would say like payback victories gifted victories you see all the time two riders coming to the line and one rider decides to let the other guy go first because you know some relationship or favor um the longer view of course is that yambo visma has these guys under contract for several more years Kus is an essential protecting rider for Vingegaard and Roglic. The last thing they want to do is alienate a person they need to help win the Tour de France, the Giro d'Italia, other races, next year's Vuelta. Um, and that the argument could be made directly to Roglic and, and Vingegaard. Like, this guy is going to help you. If you throw him this bone here, if you give him this opportunity here, you will have earned his loyalty for life. Uh, and he will be able to, he will do whatever you need him to do to, in order to secure future victories for yourself. So I think that part of it played in now, again, there is sort of a, a ruthless opinion on this too, which is that like, that's not what Sepkus was there to do. He is literally paid to do another job, which is to support these riders. And you can strip the romance and the sentimental aspect of this totally out. I don't buy, however, you see this going around a little bit that this is the first, sporting event engineered by social media, like the result, you know, and 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 I, I I feel pretty strongly that these European teams are not like looking at Twitter and, and making decisions based on that. I think they were quite aware of the fact that Kuss would be a very popular championship champion, but I also think they were worried about the backlash if it looked like they had top riders sabotaging a support rider. There is something unique to cycling here in the... Um kind of individuals on a team aspect. Uh, but maybe it's not as unique as we think. I mean, in Formula One, which I will confess, I don't follow that closely. It's all, you know, there, it's often like, all right, throttle down so Verstappen can uh, can take this one. I mean, there there's individuals on the same team and there's a choice made of who the number one driver is. And then, you know, the team's resources go to that driver during a race and or or... Um, at the at the very least, if it's a head-to-head -head competition, the team will 
you know, favor the the number one guy, the guy who has the most points, the guy who has the chance to win the series championship. I mean, maybe it's analogous to something that we don't see all that often in track and field, which is that you have these rabbits, these pace setters yeah. who go out, um, you know, sometimes they get a huge lead. A lot of the time they veer off and let the stars, you know, duel it out. But sometimes the pace setter wins. I mean, it doesn't happen very often. Um, it's usually like headline worthy um, and and unusual. Um, but sometimes the person just goes out there and, uh, you know, ends up winning the race and everybody's shocked. We're like, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Or um, there was that uh, Olympic race of uh, a few Olympics back, Stefan, with Esther Ledesca, um, the skier from the Czech Republic, who goes out in this like second wave of skiers after you know, all the good ones have already gone and she's like a snowboarder and she goes out there and, and wins the race, like when NBC or whoever had already announced that it was over. Um, I don't know if any of those analogies kind of make sense to you, Jason. I guess it would kind of depend on Sepkus's place in the sport and just how you see cycling working as compared to other sports. Well, you have to get into the Wayback Machine for this one, but I think that there are probably Vingegaard or Roglic fans who look at this as more analogous to uh, the the uh, Patriots-Bears Super Bowl and when Mike Ditka made the decision to let Fridge Perry score a touchdown <laughs> instead of Walter Payton, which in the moment you know, was definitely yielding to Fridge Perry mania and how Fridge was this beloved pop culture character but over the course of time has looked like a pretty rough decision when you consider that Walter Payton, Mr. Bears, did not score a touchdown in his lone Super Bowl appearance. I don't know if that works, but I thought of that one as well. What about um, cycling compared to tennis? Because I think about um, we're in this era now, Jason, where, you know, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, the, or maybe the reason why these three guys, Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic, have taken a huge lead in Grand Slams is because they decided that Grand Slams are the most important thing. Like, there was a long time in tennis where people didn't even go to Australia, like yeah. a lot of the best players. And so these numbers um, become kind of like self-perpetuating, or when somebody decides that this is the thing, there's just this kind of monomaniacal focus on it, which leads me to wonder, in cycling, does it actually hurt Vingegaard and Roglic to have not won the Vuelta this year? Like, is there this kind of monomaniacal focus in this generation of cyclists? Like, we want to accumulate as many of these Grand Tours as possible. And so this is this, like, a huge sacrifice for us not to take one. Or are they just like, Tour de France, let this, you know, American guy get this one. It's really a minor event in the grand scheme of things, and nobody's going to this isn't going to be a ding on our legacy. Well, I mean, and the flip side is that, and, and the, the corollary to that is that not, not only will it not be a ding on their legacy, but it'll actually enhance their legacy because they did the right thing here. They were gracious. They ceded the the podium to this the domestique. I mean, I think that's 100% correct that that's how it will be viewed over time and it's already being viewed. Uh, but I do appreciate the fact that you kind of got to look into the mind of a Grand Tour you know, perennial and see that, you know, winning is kind of everything to these individuals. You don't get to the point of being a two-time Tour de France winner like Jonas, Jonas Vingegaard by being, you know, merciful, uh, you know, or in gifting away stages. It's just not part of your character usually. Um, 
And I think that it's not, you know, it's it's not a potential signal of an epidemic in cycling. This has never happened before. A team has not won all three Grand Tours over the course of the season. So this is historic. Um, you know, there was an interest in maybe doing the Giro Vuelta double, but I would be damned if I could find an American cycling fan who, you know, was steeped in the history of the Giro Vuelta double or the Tour Vuelta double. I mean, these are sort of meaningless compilations that, you know, might be meaningful to the individual riders, but certainly would not have anywhere near the footprint of what this Sepkus part of it is, too. And don't also, I mean, don't discount the American side of this, too, which is that, America is a huge cycling market. We may underperform in the Grand Tours. We may have had scandalized champions in our past, but it's also a massive market for our cycling manufacturers. And I'm not saying that like bike companies decided this too, but it's certainly a consideration when you think about the impact a winner can have. I'm just waiting for Yumbo to open up a, a grocery store in my neighborhood. I mean, I'll be there every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, re the reporting, believe it or not, heading into the Tour de France was that, you know, there was a speculation that they were looking for a new sponsor for 2024 and that uh, the PIF in Saudi Arabia was uh, among the leading candidates, as they are for almost everything in sports, I guess. There you days. go. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think we can't escape ultimately the psychology of all of this. You know, back to the Federer and Nadal Djokovic analogy, um, it didn't sound like Vingegaard or Roglic were particularly psyched about doing this. Yeah. I mean, they were very cautious in their comments. Yeah, they were complimentary of Kuss and the role he had played in helping them win the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia. But ultimately, I mean, Roglic said, I mean, definitely he's for sure the guy I wish to win it now. I have my own thoughts about that, <laughs> but I will try to do it the way it is. Does that sound like a, a guy that was you know, say I'm going to throttle down because it's the right thing to do. Sure. It absolutely sounds like that. And it reminds me a little bit of like, you know, with the tennis comparison, you know, everyone loved to romanticize the clashes of the big three and, you know, how great it would be to see X versus X in the final. And I always thought it would be funny how the players themselves, Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, would sometimes take the air out of that. Like their clip started going around this week of Djokovic talking about how he didn't really miss Federer and Nadal in finals, not because he disliked them personally and just removing that aspect of it entirely. It's just because he can win more. You know, it's just this guy fundamentally wants to win championships and, and whatever makes it an easier path for him is the path that he would prefer. Now, of course, you know, context and time will make him appreciate those rivalry matches more, but it was sort of insightful as to like what these guys are actually, what, what drives them, which is ultimately winning. I guess the next step for Sepp Kuss is becoming popular enough that we can all agree on how to pronounce his last name. Uh, I think it's, I think it's Kuss. Um, but he, is somebody who did not have any kind of footprint in mainstream America uh, before this victory. He might still not. I don't know what um, the future is going to hold for him marketing-wise. But um, what can you tell us about him in particular? And I'm also curious if there was any kind of negative impact from the Armstrong-Landis era. Is there a lost generation of folks who just like didn't go into the sport in America because it was so tainted or have we, if, if you kind of subtract that misbegotten era, 
is this about the same kind of historic level of American success or lack thereof that we have? And occasionally you get a guy like this who has his, you know, brief moment in the sun. Sepp Kuss is a very particular type of cyclist, which is he is a cyclist who was born and raised in Durango, Colorado. He is the son of a former Olympic ski coach, Dolph Kuss, and he grew up Nordic skiing. He grew up mountain biking. He, you know, kids who grow up in that region are on bikes before they can walk. Um, I don't, I think you kind of exist in a world apart from what's happening in Europe, what's happening with, you know, Lance Armstrong and Floyd Landis. It's just bikes are a way of life there. And he was identified rather early as a talent. Interestingly, he did not get going in road cycling until a somewhat advanced age in his, uh, in his college years. But from the minute he got onto a bike, it was pretty clear that he was a mountain goat. You're living at altitude. This is somebody who, um, you know, was kind of built for this uh, physiologically. Whether or whether or not he becomes sort of a mainstream star in America, I mean, I think it's funny that we're even talking about the Volta Espana, which is something <laughs> that historically has been kind of the... Um, the second dessert on the calendar or the third dessert. I mean, it's like for sickos only really in America, I really not something that makes much of an impact here in the States. People don't really discuss it. The fact that it's kind of getting headlines on ESPN is amazing to me. It's not the kind of thing that normally gets uh, covered. And and if Kuss is able to capitalize on this right now, he's sort of the world's most highly paid supporting actor you know, there's speculation, does he leave and go off to another team where he will get opportunity to do this kind of thing all the time? That's the big question, I think, going forward. Jason Gay is a sports columnist for the Wall Street Journal. And it's always a pleasure to have him on this program. Jason, thank you. Thank you both. I appreciate it. Up next, we'll talk to the Athletics' Sabrina Merchant about the WNBA playoffs. From the jump, this WNBA season was about two seemingly unstoppable super teams. One was the defending champion Las Vegas Aces, who added Candace Parker to a stacked lineup, including Asia Wilson, Kelsey Plum, Chelsea Gray, and Jackie Young. The other was the New York Liberty, who signed bona fide stars Brianna Stewart, John Quell Jones, and Courtney Vandersloot to a team that already included budding superstar Sabrina Ionescu. And unstoppable, these two teams pretty much were. The Aces waltzed through the regular season with a record-breaking 34 wins against just six losses. The Liberty went 32-8, and eight, and no one else was particularly close. Sabrina Merchant is a staff writer at The Athletic and a host of the Athletic Women's Basketball Show podcast. She joins us now from Los Angeles. Hey, Sabrina, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me on. On Sunday, the Aces blew out the Chicago Sky 92-70 to behind 38 points and 16 rebounds from Asia Wilson to sweep that first-round playoff series two games to none. The Liberty routed the Washington Mystics 90-75 to in Game 1 of their series. Thanks to seven threes and 29 points from Ionescu, Game 2 is Tuesday night. Sabrina, sure, you got to play the games. Anything can happen, blah, blah, blah. But barring a team meal food poisoning outbreak, is there any reason to believe that Vegas and New York won't meet in the WNBA Finals in a couple of weeks? You know, I've been trying to rack my brain to find one of those reasons, and uh, I don't really have one. 
I thought the Mystics might give the Liberty some difficulty in the first round, and I think we saw that in the first half of their game, but ultimately New York just has too much offensive firepower for anybody on their side of the bracket, and I think we're seeing the exact same thing happen with Las Vegas on their side of the bracket. If if these two teams don't meet in the WNBA Finals, like it's a it's a massive loss for the WNBA, I think, and it's just going to be a huge, colossal surprise. Stefan mentioned Candace Parker in his intro. She's been out injured, so this team could have even been more super. Um, Asia Wilson with 38 points. It's a team record for the playoffs. Um, how has this team actually looked on the court versus um, what was anticipated? Obviously, things have had to change with Parker not being on the court. Yeah, you know, the Aces are the defending champions, and so every defending champ comes in with the expectation of being one of the better teams in the league. But being able to add Alicia Clark, who's just the, one of the great role players of all time in WNBA history, and then adding Candace Parker like, on top of everything that they won with in the championship run last year, although they did lose Derrica Hamby to the Los Angeles Sparks, like you add a two-time MVP and former Defensive Player of the Year and like potentially one of the five greatest players of all time in women's basketball history, like that will make a champion into something exceedingly more special. And the fact that they started, you know, 18 and one with Candace Parker and then managed to still finish 34 and six without her, uh, I think is just a testament to what this team like already was as a championship team. Like they they kind of barely won the title. You know, last year they had to squeak by Seattle. They had to squeak by Connecticut, even though both of those are four game series. Some of those games were exceedingly close. Uh they were so very special at the start of the year with Candace Parker. And the fact that they have Asia Wilson who can just do everything like as that Candace Parker was basically providing them, not everything. I don't want to say that she's providing the playmaking that Candace was bringing during the first half of the season, but that she's taken her game to another level in these games that Candace Parker has missed. And you've kind of not really noticed Candace's absence other than the games against New York Liberty. I'm going to make sure to <laughs> address that caveat. Uh, it's just... This is such a very special basketball team. Like, I don't know another way to say it. They're so stifling on the defensive end. Like, you watch some of those early possessions against Chicago, and it's like, how are this guy supposed to get the ball inside the paint against this off, like defense? And then the way they run the floor, the way they move the ball, it's it's such a fun style of basketball to watch. Um, it would be so much more fun if Candace Barker were still playing, but even without her and even without, you know, Raquana Williams, who missed the first part of the season with the back injury and now has had some legal issues keeping her off the court, uh, it's just such a complete basketball team and the fact that they only have really seven rotation players that they trust makes it even more special in some way because like their core players have missed two games to injury all year. It's wild that only Kelsey Plum's one game and Alicia Clark's one game. It's like they've been able to stay remarkably healthy other than Candace Parker. Um, and it's just a testament to like what they're building there, like the facilities, the investment that they have in this team. Uh, I can't say enough good things about the Las Vegas Aces. I'm not even sure that they're going to win the title, which is like a wild thing to say for a team that has been this good um, and this remarkable, but it's it's just a really cool story for the W. Yeah, I mean, it's been so sort of foregone-ish a conclusion that these two teams should be the two contenders. I mean, the, your, your organization, The Athletic, um, has been running a series all season called Super Squads about Vegas and New York. And you've been covering Vegas. You mentioned some of the other stuff, the facilities, the coaching. And what have you seen about the organization that sort of is, might be changing the paradigm for what a high-level women's basketball team can be? I mean, th I think first of all, it starts with Becky Hammond, the fact that the Las Vegas Aces hired her to be a coach with a salary of up to a million dollars 
providing she hit all of her incentives last year. And spoiler alert, she hit all of her incentives last year when they done the WNBA championship. Uh, she's the first seven-figure coach in WNBA history. And when you have a league where the salary cap is only about $1.4 million, that's a massive investment to play to your coach. Um, and I think we're seeing teams you know, try to raise the bar when it comes to their coaching hires. I think we'll see more of that this offseason when Phoenix has an opening, when Chicago has an opening. Um, but more so on the investment side of things with the facilities, like Vegas was the first team to have its own private dedicated practice facility. There are teams that are with NBA teams that have access to those NBA facilities, but there aren't their own. You know, they still have to share them with their NBA counterparts. But now we're seeing Chicago putting in the money for a new facility and Seattle just broke ground for a new facility this year. Uh, so it's sort of an arms race, I guess, you know, in terms of everybody wanting to build the best infrastructure to attract free agents and also just to protect their players once they're in-house, right? I think the fact that, like I mentioned earlier, of that core six on Vegas, like two missed games of that core six, that shouldn't happen in a WNBA season. But I think the fact that they've really put the best performance staffs in place, you know, to make sure that their team is as productive and as healthy as possible has really been shining during this regular season. You mentioned this being a great story for the WNBA. Um, in one sense, yes, but it's season has been bookended by the allegations about salary cap circumvention, about um, the team mishandling, mistreating Derricka Ambie's pregnancy and booting her off the team because of it. Being around the team, have you developed any um, kind of uh, insight into both how that stuff has affected the team and has played out within that building, but also kind of your own feelings about how to think about the transcendence we see on the court and some of those stories off the court that maybe don't put the franchise or put the league in a positive light? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. Uh, to start with Derek Hamby, who you know announced her pregnancy at the Las Vegas Aces parade last year, you know, a huge celebratory moment, uh, expecting her second child on the day that they were welcoming their first championship trophy to the city of Las Vegas. Uh, and then accused the organization of belittling her and, you know, questioning the timing of her pregnancy. And ultimately, uh, the Aces traded her away to Los Angeles and Becky Hammond was suspended two games at the start of the season for uh, basically the treatment that Derricka Hamby had said, you know, happened to her when she was in Las Vegas. And I mean, there's no overlooking that, right? I, I think that's probably part of the reason why Becky Hammond only got three coach of the year votes in a season when the Las Vegas Aces went 34 and six and, you know, set an overall wins record and did a bunch of other historic things. Uh, you can't overlook that, right? Um, and Hammond has apologized for that. And just, uh, I, I know Derricka Hamby doesn't hold ill will towards the rest of the Vegas organization. Um, just in my experience covering the Sparks, like that doesn't seem to be the case anymore, but that that did happen, and I'm sure Becky Hammond said some things that she wasn't supposed to say to Dierka Hamby in terms of talking to her about her pregnancy. Um, but the way that they've treated the other players on the roster and the fact that they still were able to bring in two moms into their organization, like Candace Parker is a mom of two children, Kayla George is a, a mother, like a recent mother, uh, and they've just spoken glowingly about the type of treatment that they've gotten as members of the Aces. Uh, I don't want to overlook what happened with Tierica, but I do think it's not necessarily a pattern of behavior so much as a, an isolated incident that got a little out of hand. Uh, as far as the tampering, I 
I really don't care about pay- players getting paid under the table in the WNBA. <laughs> like the salaries are uh, artificially lower, I think, than they need to be. And I don't think that the Aces are the only team doing this. Uh, the fact that players were, you know, given extra benefits for signing with the Aces, I'm pretty sure happens all around the league. And uh, it just doesn't really move the needle for me as much as some <laughs> other things would. Uh, Brianna Stewart has moved the needle for the New York basketball market for women's for the for for the women's team. Um, like explosion in ticket sales, the Liberty said that ticket sales were up over a hundred percent growth uh, for the season. Two hundred percent growth in season tickets sold. Uh, home attendance up twenty five hundred per game. Um, is this what can happen? I mean, obviously, it is what can happen when you bring in one of the greatest superstars in a sport. I mean, is there anything about what's changed in New York that surprises you? Or does it feel like, yeah, this is how a business functions when you give it the resources and attract the kind of talent that will bring people into the stands? I guess the only potential surprise about what's happened with Liberty is how quickly it all came together. You know, we see these potential super teams that take some time to figure each other out or, you know, there's some chemistry issues to work through. And we saw that for the first like 18 to 20 games, but this is only a 40 game season. And the fact that they still managed to finish with the second best record, still had the second best offense, third best defense with the season series with the Las Vegas Aces. Like I think everything came together about as quickly as they could have hoped on the basketball side. And as far as the business side of things, you know, ever since the ownership changed from James Dolan to Joe Sy and uh, you know, around 2019. I think this has been in the works. You know, it just so happened that the first season they played was in the bubble, so they weren't really allowed to take advantage of the opportunity of playing at Barclays Center. Um, and then the team just took some time to come along with where the business side was. But the fact that they have this growth in season tickets, the fact that, you know, merchandising sales have gone up to the percentages that, you know, you've discussed, like that's Brianna Stewart too. I mean, it's not just a superstar going to play for the New York Liberty. It's one of the greatest players of all time going to play for the New York Liberty. And I think any... I mean, she set the record for most points in a season, albeit a longer season. Sure. I mean, you just look at what she accomplished in her college career, right? Four straight national championships, four straight most outstanding player awards. I mean, this isn't just anybody going to join the New York Liberty. I, I would trust a fan base as dedicated as the New York basketball fan base to realize what sort of greatness was coming in front of them. But it has been very, very cool to see it's just the Barclays Center atmosphere this whole season. Uh, the fact that Stewie started it off by, I think, setting a Liberty franchise record like in her very first game at Barclays Center was just such a, a very cool way of tipping off the season. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it's any like shock that this has happened. Uh, I think it's awesome for the league because this has been such an untapped market. You know, like other franchises around the league have been able to survive during the lean years. You look at the attendance in Phoenix this season when they went 9-31, and 31, they were still second in the league. Um, so hopefully the Liberty proves a little bit more resilient than that because they haven't in the past. But for them to actually appreciate a great team and be able to witness a great team, I think is just, again, another awesome storyline for the league. To generalize pretty wildly, I would say that the NBA, out of all the major North American professional sports leagues has benefited over its history from um, super teams, I guess, in modern parlance, but also dynasties, showcase franchises when the Lakers and Celtics are good, when Jordan was on the Bulls, um, when LeBron was on the Heat. Those were moments that you can, if you just looked at a a graph, you can see 
that that does literally move the needle, that ratings go up, that attention goes up with a sport like, you know, maybe on the opposite end of the continuum um, with a sport like hockey, that's a, a sport where, yeah, obviously there are teams that are better known and that maybe will get better ratings, but it's a local, it's a, a sport that depends on local fandoms, on, um, you know, gate attendance. It's just a kind of different model. Um, baseball, I think, the, the same. How do you see the WNBA kind of shaking out? Obviously, the Liberty and the Aces are bringing a lot of attention to the league. There's going to, if they do meet in the finals, that'll probably get better ratings than any WA finals ever. But in kind of the long term, do you see this as a league that's really going to be about developing local fan bases and that's more the model? Or is it kind of similar to the NBA where in an era when you have super teams and dynasties that capture national attention, the league will do better and there will be more interest? Yeah, so first of all, I think basketball, just relative to hockey and baseball, naturally promotes individuals more just because a single superstar can have an outsized effect on the performance of a team relative to you know, a 30-player roster in baseball or most hockey players don't even play half the game. So individual superstars, individual like superstar rivalries like Bird Magic, like Asia Wilson, Brianna Stewart, I think are just a bigger deal in basketball than they would be in other sports because of how much of an effect Wilson and Stewart can have on their respective teams. And then the WNBA itself, it, it just can't happen to that local fandom the way other leagues do. I mean, they have 30 teams around the country. The WNBA only has 12 and has only had 12, I believe, since 2008. So, oh, they're looking I mean, at expansion very closely, Sabrina. Very closely. This is what I've been told. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if and until the league expands and expands significantly, I would say they kind of have to rely more on a national draw than you know building local markets. It's not like college basketball where you know you have schools every little pocket around the country that can tap into these fan bases. They have to draw you know from a national audience, and I think that's what makes this New York Las Vegas rivalry so special because. It has the geographical component, right? You've got the Pacific time team. You've got the East Coast time team. You've got the one player from Connecticut, the one from South Carolina. The way these teams were built was very different. Like Las Vegas has three number one draft picks, mostly homegrown, and then New York just brought in two MVPs and a former all-star in free agency and via trade. Uh, I think this is the type of thing that the WNBA really needs to you know, really sell a narrative, to sell a storyline, because... They, they just can't get into the homes of everybody around the country, right? They just don't have a local presence that's going to allow them to do that. So they need something glamorous, something starry, a big rivalry like this to really sell tickets to get people watching their televisions. And I think, you know, the Minnesota Lynx, Los Angeles Sparks had a brief rivalry at the, you know, middle of 2010s that really pumped up the numbers in the WNBA finals when they met in back-to-back -back seasons. Um, but that was only two years, you know, and then Minnesota hasn't won a playoff series since then, and the Los Angeles Sparks have missed the playoffs three years in a row. So it's not like that really <laughs> carried things. You know, Maya Moore retired unexpectedly early in her career, so I, I don't think that that lasted as long as the WNBA was hoping for it to. Um, but I think what we have here in Vegas and New York is slightly more sustainable. I mean, obviously this is just year one, and a year later I could be look like a complete idiot for suggesting that this was going to miraculously like, last much longer, but... Uh, the way these two teams have been constructed, I do think that there is potential for this to last like a few more years to really uh, give the WNBA something to latch onto, you know, for a meaningful amount of time. 
before we let you go, Sabrina, I wanted to ask you about how things turned out for the season. Um, for Phoenix, you mentioned having the worst le- record in the league, but also for Brittany Griner's return. In terms of things that move the needle for the WNBA, certainly Brittany Griner's release from detention in Russia and her triumphant return to the court was a huge story at the beginning of this season. Uh, how did things play out for Griner over the course of the regular season? It's interesting because, you know, she was voted an all-star starter, one of only, you know, 10 players around the league who was voted an all-star starter. So that would suggest a certain level of production. And yet if you talk to BG, if you talk to, you know, people around Phoenix, like they're very complimentary of how she was playing, but it still wasn't the same Brittany Griner we had seen, you know, in 2021 when she helped lead the Mercury to the WNBA finals um, or, you know, played in the Olympics that year and helped deliver a gold medal to the United States. Uh, so the fact that she was able to be so productive while still, I think, leaving some room on the table to be even better next year uh, is, is pretty cool because like, she still managed to be some version of the Brittany Griner we've come to know and love uh, and like has room to grow and help make the Mercury better because they, they're going to need it. <laughs> like, uh, I think this season for the Mercury was more a function of Brittany just not being available the whole time and like how could we expect her to be considering she came out of detention and had a lot to deal with on an emotional and personal level, not just a physical level. Um, the fact that Diana Taurasi is 41 years old and probably shouldn't be expected to complete a 40-game season anymore, I think uh, there are some real questions to be had in Phoenix about how they're building their roster around those two players and if uh, a succession plan needs to have started uh, yesterday, potentially. Um, but yeah, I think even though they went 9-31, and 31, just like the atmosphere around the Mercury was so much better than it was last year. And again, how could it not be? Uh, this was the happiest 9-31 and 31 team I've ever seen in my entire life. Like they were just so positive around their teammates. And again, there's an obvious caveat that I'm overlooking that there was a player who was like willingly stepping away from the team and apparently barred from practice facilities in Skylar Diggins-Smith while she was on maternity leave. So again, an uglier story that we can't just look, look over. But um the players who took the court for the Phoenix Mercury, the fact that they had Griner back, the fact that this wasn't this dark cloud hanging over the team and the league, uh, I think was overall a positive. Like I'm sure everybody on the Mercury would much rather have a 9-31 season with BG in the United States than whatever they had last year when they made the playoffs while she was in yeah. detention. Yeah, and, and to be fair, she averaged 17.5, led the team in scoring. Tarasi had averaged 16. Um, but they both were missed a bunch of games too, and that must have impacted the you know the nine and thirty one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's like the most fascinating offseason in the WNBA going forward because they have a new uh, general manager. They'll have to make a coach hire. Uh, they have a lottery pick for the first time in over a decade. I mean, the last time they had one, they used it to draft Brittany Griner. Like we've talked on this show before about the potential great stars coming out of college basketball this year. So. They could reload really quickly, um, but it could also potentially take some more time down there. Sabrina Merchant is a staff writer at The Athletic who covers women's basketball. She also is a host of The Athletic Women's Basketball Show podcast. Sabrina, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Anytime. And now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. Josh, we talked about bicycle racing on the show. We don't normally talk about bicycle racing on the show. And they have these things in bicycle races called stages. Yes. Stages. Yes. 
Um, they are part of the bicycle race. Yes. They are chunks of the bicycle race. You're doing great, race. man. Keep going with this. I love Thanks. it. Thank you. So it got me wondering who's won the most stages in bike races. And I just wanted to focus on the Spanish race because that's what we talked about this week. And the guy with the most stage wins at the Vuelta a España is a guy named Delio Rodriguez. He was born in 1916, died in 1994. He won 39 stages overall in the Vuelta, 19 more than the person in second place who's an Italian whose name I can't really pronounce. Um, Rodriguez won 12 of those stages in 1941, eight in 1942. And it really feels like it's kind of the Australian Open of stage winning. Well, that's during World War II, Stefan. Well, no, the race was canceled in 1943 and 44. It was held in 41 and 42. No, but what I'm saying, what I'm saying is maybe uh, the competition wasn't as uh, it's possible steep that the competition wasn't there. Yeah. yeah, but over his career, that was only you know that was what 12 and eight is 20 of his 39. He went on to win more after the war. Um, and he finally did win um, an overall Vuelta. When he won those 12 stages and eight stages, he didn't even win the race. Bicycle racing is weird. I knew I knew that the show, after all these years, was going to get to, um, you know, debating the legitimacy of Delio Rodriguez's Vuelta a España stage wins. It was inevitable. Every sports talk show kind of gets to this point. Mm -hmm. It took us a long time, but I'm glad we're here that we can, um, you know, move on because... This is a real, this is what divides some of the the greatest thinker. It's broken up relationships. Just having I expect, I expect this is going to be on first take tomorrow because it really is kind of the question for all of our times. Josh, what's your Delio Rodriguez? The 2023 Major League Soccer season has been defined by the brilliance of FC Cincinnati, which sits atop the Eastern Conference standings. With 58 points, and all right, I'm done with this bit. It's all about Lionel Messi, even when Lionel Messi doesn't play. When I Googled Atlanta United versus Inter Miami, the top headlines on Google were, Lionel Messi not an Inter Miami squad for Atlanta United match. And, why isn't Messi playing today? Inter Miami star not in starting lineup versus Atlanta United. And, naturally, Atlanta United troll Lionel Messi after beating Inter Miami 5-2. Uh, but no. Uh, that's actually a bit too, Stefan. This is a classic double diversion after ball because wow. the real, real yes. story of this MLS season is another player from Argentina, a guy named Matko Miljevic. And once you join me on this journey, I am sure you'll agree. You'll also get the answer to why someone named Matko Miljevic is from Argentina. I first learned about this guy from the soccer writer Brian Sharetta's uh, Twitter feed, and a Brian Sharetta story on the website American Soccer Now is the best source I found about uh, Miljevic's background. He was born in the U.S. in the early 1990s after his parents moved to Miami during Argentina's financial crisis. His family then returned to Argentina, and Miljevich rose up the ranks of that country's youth soccer system. His grandfather was Croatian, which explains the the last name, and also made him potentially eligible to play for Croatia in international soccer. So far, though, he's represented both the United States and Argentina at the youth level without a senior national team appearance for either of those countries. Professionally, our man signed a contract with Major League Soccer's CF Montreal in 2021. And so far, the now 22-year-old Miljevic has played a little more than 30 games for them, scoring two goals 
and earning an annual salary of around $500,000. Earlier this year, he had surgery for a torn meniscus. You also might find a headline about how he was fined an undisclosed amount for a pretty ridiculous flop, even by soccer standards, in a game back in June. That's pretty much it. And I think you'll agree at this stage of the afterball, pretty boring sports career. Uh, But then last week, the French language website, and you're going to have to forgive me, Don Les Coulisse, donlescoulisse.com, reported that Matko Miljevic wasn't just playing his club soccer for CF Montreal. As an aside, Don Les Coulisse means behind the scenes. Uh, again, I apologize to all of our Francophone listeners. But anyway, that site reported that Matko Miljevic was also playing in the QCSL. QCSL, Stefan. That is, of course, the We're league. Back. Quebecois de soccer, Calcetto. Again, apologies. I'm try- not trying to create an international incident. You know, you get what you I'm... get when you choose an afterball that includes <laughs> lots of foreign words. I, I'm a Spanish, Spanish guy. Always took Spanish. Anyway, QCSL, we'll call it. It's an amateur league, an amateur league, and the Montreal suburbs. Matko reportedly suited up because he was dissatisfied with his MLS playing time and because his friend asked him to. And he rewarded that friend by scoring six goals in three games in the suburban Quebec Soccer League. Matko's QCSL team was named The Rage. They were in eighth place out of nine teams in this Tuesday league, and they did not win any of the games when Matko Miljevic took the field. So not quite the impact that Messi had on Inter-Miami. Also, Matko was playing in that league under an assumed name. This is an important point, which according to a Montreal radio host named Tony Marinero, uh, was the assumed name Nicolas Sotelo. For Miljevic or Sotelo or Ron Canada, if anyone still gets that reference, there were a couple of problems here. First, His MLS contract, as you might predict, forbade him from playing for any other uh, teams, much less in an amateur Quebec suburban league. Then, if that wasn't enough, Stefan, the amateur league found out he was playing under a fake identity and insisted that he (laughs) use his real name. Instead of that, Miljevic, no longer Sotelo, decided to retire from suburban amateur Quebec soccer. But then... There's another t- twist. But then, this is the this is the twist. <laughs> Matko Miljevic, because if we've learned anything from this afterball, it's that he's a good friend. He was attending his friend's amateur Quebec suburban soccer league game after he retired from the league himself. He reportedly spat at one of his friend's opponents and then reportedly punched that opponent in the face. I think we can all agree that this is no longer a boring sports career. What happened next, I think, will be familiar to anyone who's played a rec league soccer game under a fake name, then quit when asked to use their real name, then gone back and spit on someone and punched them. Matkil Miljevic was told to vacate the premises and never return to Quebec amateur soccer. And then, according again to Tony Marinero, our friend Matko, had his contract terminated by Major League Soccer's CF Montreal. So he's done now. Reportedly. This all happened like in the last few days. Um, Stefan, do you understand what this means? If his contract got terminated, that means he's no longer forbidden from playing amateur soccer. 
Nicholas Sotelo is back, baby. I was going to say, he's probably not going to be playing for Croatia, the United (laughs) States, or Argentina in any future World Cup. You stepped on my last line, but I'm going to give it to you. So far as yes, so far, so far as I know, he is still eligible to play for the U.S. men's national team. Attention, Greg Berhalter. If that Geo Reyna reconciliation thing doesn't work out, Nicholas Sotelo and/or Matko Miljevic could be your men. And if not, he's free to play in a different suburban rec soccer league in Montreal or any other city. As of the time that I uh, was looking at this stuff on Sunday into Monday, uh, I think every story that was written about this, the the original story that, let me make sure I pronounce this incorrectly again, Don, uh, Don Le Coulis, uh, that original story is in French, French language website. Every other story that I read what, that's in English was like aggregated from that. And like mm. kind of badly. Uh, and maybe there's been some other stuff since uh, by the time you read this. But I don't think it, there's been any like original, and I could be wrong. I don't think there's been any original English language reporting. And this is like, it's bigger than messy. Like th- this is the greatest story in, in MLS. Like Wait, somebody not, needs not... to do, somebody needs to do a de- Like I haven't seen anybody like interview the players who are in that rec league game, any of the Montreal teammates, like you've got to get an Argentina dateline in there to like talk to some relatives. Did any of the see this? Kind of, like talk I to see, Messi. Talk to Messi. He's from Argentina. Like there has to be some sort of like cliche ridden narrative podcast about how this teaches us about the nature of truth and, and identity in our fractured age, like by three weeks from now, like, I feel like as hang up and listen, listeners, we're like on the cutting edge here, but maybe we're only like a day and a half ahead. So take advantage of the lead that you have here and, you know, we'll see where where this takes us. What do you think his biggest indiscretion was? Playing for the suburban soccer league team, scoring too many goals so he drew notice on the suburban Oh, that's actually controversial. That's actually controversial. So apparently, <laughs> so I, I some people who are like because this guy I think got a reasonably large like transfer fee to go to Montreal and has been a disappointment. Mm-hmm. And apparently there was like one of those games where he did really well in the amateur league and scored like five goals, and the rest he wasn't even that good. Mm. Like he's not even, you know, a consistent performer day to day in the uh, QCSL. But don't sleep on the QCSL, Josh. It's a very I mean- serious league. They don't you know, take any of this, any of this lately. There, I mean, there is a kind of societal, like we look down on spitting at people as just a, as, as a, a species, I feel like, like that's not like when you say someone spit on you, spit at you or spit on you, that's generally, I feel like perceived as more of a diss or more of a, a no-no than like punching someone in the face. So mm-hmm. maybe if you're asking me the question of where he went wrong, yeah, maybe when, he hocked the loogie, I would say. Spitting in times of COVID also kind of frowned upon. All right, we will update as events warrant. But for today, that is our show. 
Our producer this week filling in for Kevin Bendis was Patrick Fort. To listen to Pashas and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>